Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. What are the questions we should be asking about enslavement right before and during the Civil War? How will these questions force us to look at the Civil War differently? Associate Professor of History at the University of Kentucky, Dr. Amy Murrell Taylor, answers many of those questions in her book, Embattled Freedom, Journeys Through the Civil War's Slave Refugee Camps. Her earlier work was titled The Divided Family in Civil War America. Dr. Taylor, welcome to Think Humanities Podcast. Thank you for having me. If you will, to begin with, let's uh, let's set the, the scene. You write that the Civil War was just days old when the first enslaved men, women, and children began fleeing their plantations to seek refuge inside the lines of the Union Army as it moved deep into the heart of the Confederacy. So give us an idea of what was really going on in the North and the South uh, months up to days before uh, the Civil War actually began. You called it the tangled history that I was uncovering, that you were uncovering, the tangled mm-hmm. history. What made it tangled? Ah, well, it's a big question. Um, I mean, of course, there had been a long-standing conflict debate, north-south, east-west, over slavery uh, that had largely played out in political circles for years. And that's what you know, pulled this nation apart. Um, but what happens here is that slavery and abolition are also something lived by nearly 4 million people when the war breaks out. And they sense that this war, even though Lincoln is not saying he is going to free any slaves in the South, he promises he's not going to, they sense that this war is probably for them. And so they begin fleeing into Union Army lines from the very first days of the war and start pushing the Union and pushing Lincoln to really advance their position on emancipation and become liberators of enslaved people all over the country. Um, So what's so tangled about this is that it's not a clear-cut story of people running away, becoming free, and living happily ever after. Um, And it's not a clear-cut story of the Union enacting emancipation policies that gradually become more and more progressive and um, move toward protecting equality. Um, In in both situations or on both tracks, um, there's a lot of forward movements and backward steps and um, a lot of improvisation that goes on. And the bottom line is for a lot of enslaved people who are trying to run to freedom, they don't fully know if they found it and if they are truly free until the war ends. And they often live in four years of suspended state of uncertainty, not really knowing. Who were the the messengers? And I don't want you to, uh, if, if you will permit me just to suggest that we'll talk about your protagonist in a moment, sure. uh, the people that you have identified and researched and guide us through mm-hmm. uh, your, your uh, work. 
But the question is, um, they were learning of the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. Um, they were uh, listening to, to someone. So who were the messengers that were, uh-huh. were telling the enslaved that uh, you, you are now free or you, you now can become, mm-hmm. yeah. you, you can become more free or you can be- begin your movement, well, if you will? The thing will. is, they're not even waiting to hear the Union tell them these things. They're running off to Union Army lines, even as the Union is telling them, no, you know, our lines aren't open to you. They're still coming and they're still coming. So that's interesting in and of itself. Um, But, you know, as the war progresses and Union Army policies do become more open and welcoming, um, yeah, then the question becomes, how does this information travel? And uh, why are people in some really remote districts and you know, Plantation, Mississippi, or Arkansas, or so forth, you know, getting word that they should go to Memphis. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a really interesting question. And what I have found, and this is building on the work of other historians, is that enslaved people always had an informal, what we call grapevine telegraph. I mean, that's kind of the common term for it. Um, An informal network of communication where, you know, people who, you know, maybe were running away and gathering information and bringing it back. Or there might be in some enslaved communities somebody who is hired out to go work in a nearby town or city, and they're gathering information and bringing it back. I mean, there's all sorts of clandestine ways in which people were moving. And therefore, when you're moving, you're carrying information. Mm -hmm. Um, So that network was always even there during slavery. And clearly, it's operational during the war as well in getting some of this word out. But also what helps is Union Army soldiers um, in many places become the messengers, too, of new Union policies. And eventually just the sight of blue uniforms Mm -hmm. becomes a powerful message in and of itself that, Mm -hmm. you know, liberators are coming. There are some other terms that uh, I'm sure historians are familiar with, but honestly, for just the uh, the, the general public and, mm-hmm. and their reading of history, or really not necessarily, I'm sure if uh, they probe deeply into mm-hmm. this uh, era, they, w- they would find terms like refugee and mm-hmm. contraband, and, mm-hmm. uh, but not necessarily in our history books did right. we grow up learning of these uh these descriptions, right? Uh, so, so tell me. Uh, I just mentioned uh, two of them. Uh, the, the other, the other definition I wanted you to give me uh, was impressment too. And, oh yeah, and how that's used. So, so go, go some through of some terms. of these terms. Well, you know, I think I just want to address the second thing you said about we didn't grow up learning these terms because I think the story of emancipation we grew up learning was Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation. Freedom has come. Boom, it's done. That's the story. And instead, it's actually, you know, this four years of pretty chaotic um, actions and really pushing by enslaved people themselves. And when you really dig into what they were doing, you start seeing that um, the union is developing lots of policies, not just the Emancipation Proclamation, lots of policies for um, dealing with freedom-seeking people. The very first one was... Um, known as a contraband order. Mm -hmm. And that was just in the very first place where enslaved people were allowed in the lines of the Union Army. That was at Fort Monroe, Virginia. The commander there, Benjamin Butler, 
justified allowing them to stay into Union lines as contraband of war, mm -hmm. as enemy property that could be seized, which is a really interesting term because he's allowing them in, but he's not freeing them. Mm -hmm. He's still classifying them as property. But it was still in his mind and really in Lincoln's and his administration's mind, a, a legal justification for his action. So contraband becomes a term for people um, who are fleeing into the lines. But then, you know, there are people who are more sympathetic with the humanity of those who have just come into the lines and don't think contraband is a very fit term. Um, and some of them are more abolitionist-minded people. And so they start writing and talking about how actually we should call them refugees, that this is a term that really captures their sort of intermediary state here. You know, maybe not quite free, but not slave. And they are certainly fleeing persecution and seeking protection. Um, so refugee is a term that really takes off as well. Um, so, so those terms are all just really, I think, interesting ones that show that there was this very nebulous middle position that people entered into during the Civil War on their way to freedom. And it's one that we just haven't seen very well. Um, but impressment, that- it's a fascinating uh, interpretation of that. Uh -huh. And w whether the, the, the true uh, textbook definition really means what you're going to tell us about and, and how it was uh -huh. used then is is yeah. fascinating. Well, you know, impressment, um, you know, in textbooks we talk about impressment in the context of war. Men are impressed into service, forced to serve. Um, and in this context, it was also used with regard to people. Um, but in this case, for enslaved people to labor for the Union Army. Mm -hmm. And, not fight. <clears throat> right. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, you know, as the union is allowing people into union army lines, they realize, wow, this is a really great labor source for the union army. Um, and they do put them to work. Um, but in some places, there aren't as many people forthcoming. And the union has this insatiable demand for labor. And so in those places, they start going out into the plantation districts and rounding men up and forcing them to come work for the union. And one place where that happens is here in Kentucky, because um, Kentucky is its own story, really, in all of this. Um, but it is one where a lot of these emancipation policies did not apply. But the union needs, they believe, the labor of men to build military roads and so forth. And uh, so they start impressing enslaved men to come work for the union. But they don't pay those men for their labor, they pay their owner. So a man impressed by the Union Army to work for the Union Army is still viewed as a slave by the Union Army. And this happens in Kentucky well after the Emancipation Proclamation. You, you write uh, one of your other phrases, uh, you write that uh, freedom had to be searched for and mm -hmm. found. Yeah. So when they realized or through this uh, underground messaging service that uh, the uh, Emancipation Proclamation had been signed mm -hmm. and was, uh, I would imagine, they thought uh, a force of law mm -hmm. or it was legal and it, w it meant freedom to them, they still had to search. Well, you know, it, it, and this is not to diminish the Emancipation Proclamation, but 
it's an order, but it's really performing more of a political function of mm. just making it clear that this is what the union stands for. And when this war ends, it will be um, the and the union wins. Mm. The union will abolish slavery. Um, it's not very operational. The Emancipation Proclamation. Um, it only affects areas that are in rebellion, mm. and you know they're not listening to this proclamation. And didn't affect so, the border states. It didn't affect the border states. Um, so um, um, I can't remember the first part of your question. Well, just they, they were mm-hmm. searching for. I oh, mean, yeah. This so is when, this is when this yeah. uh, enormous mm-hmm. number and and I'm not sure that uh, that that lay readers of, of mm-hmm. history even know the numbers unless you're uh-huh. um, uh, reminded of that. And uh-huh. through through your book, I mean, th- there mm-hmm. were hundreds of thousands uh, that were affected. Right. Um, well, there are about. So there's about 3.9 million people who are enslaved in 1860. About 500,000 of them flee during the Civil War into Union lines. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have to search for and find freedom, meaning that they need to find a place where freedom is recognized, where their freedom will be recognized and protected. And during the war, that means they need to go where the Union Army is. And so they are searching for the Union Army, and they are going to relocate themselves somewhere near the Union Army and set up a camp, set up a refugee camp, um, which is not to say that the life they end up building with the Army, it, you know, resembles everything they envision about freedom. It doesn't, but it, there's a, it's important to, freedom's not going to just come to the plantation. They have to go out and physically relocate themselves. Tell me about the title. Embattled Freedom. Yeah, well, what I found most um, interesting about the story, and I guess what I set out wanting to understand, is what is it like to seek freedom in the middle of a war? You know, to, to bring your family, bring your children, and go live with an army for nearly four years. You know, what kind of freedom is that? And what I found is that um, it's one, it's very vulnerable to combat, to, you know, the incoming enemy troops, and um, it's vulnerable to, you know, the diseases that are endemic to camp life and war, um, and so forth, that it's a freedom forged in war, but it's one that is full of setbacks and devastation and injury, and so it's very much an embattled sort of freedom. It's a title that I think really captures the war context of this, which is, I think, really in our story of emancipation, we've kind of forgotten. You know, we kind of jump, you know, there's this proclamation and then the war's over. Boom. You know, this is, and freedom comes. Mm -hmm. Um, That it's really a process that plays out in war. The... um if there are protagonists in uh, in this uh, story that you've uh, put together so well, it, it uh, is Edward and Emma mm-hmm. Whitehurst, mm-hmm. Uh, Eliza Bogan, and Gabriel Burdett. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about them. Uh, yeah. Well, when I set out, um, I didn't want to just write a book about a mass of people. Too often, I think we've written histories of enslaved people as like a collective and we've written about them in the aggregate, and the individuals get lost. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew from the start I wanted to highlight um, particular individuals because I also felt that that I wanted to understand the day-to-day experience. You know, what's it like to eat, breathe, sleep, live 
in a union camp. Um, and sometimes following an individual can really get you that kind of texture of life. So um, I followed a lot of individuals while researching this book, but settled on their stories. And they're ones that I pieced together from sort of far-flung mm -hmm. documentation and army records and missionary records and so forth. Um, but Emma and Edward Whitehurst, they were um, on the coast of Virginia, Hampton, Virginia. And they, they fled very early within um, days of the first enslaved people being allowed in Union lines. They flee. And one of the first things they do, they have a long, complicated story, but one of the first things that they do is they set up a store. And they recognize that in an area where there are a lot of Union soldiers, there's a market. And these soldiers, they're hungry. <laughs> they, want, they want to buy more to supplement their rations. And so it's actually a pretty savvy move on their part to build this market. And they're also selling to other people who are fleeing slavery. And they open the store with some savings they brought with them out of slavery, which sounds a little strange that they would have any. But that was actually, um, it's not a sign that they were any freer or anything. But Edward had been what was called a hired out slave. He'd been hired to work for somebody else and was allowed to keep some of his wages. That was actually fairly common. And um, so they poured their savings into the store and they open it and they have it for about a year. But then in the summer of 1862, the Union Army fails to take Richmond in the Peninsula Campaign. And the troops, they're demoralized, they're hungry. They come back down the Virginia Peninsula to Hampton and they storm into the store and they raid everything and they take it without paying. And the Whitehurst lost their store. And I'm not going to tell any more of the story. There's more to it. But it's one about just how hard it is to build a really an economic livelihood coming out of slavery in the middle of a war. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just mm -hmm. trying to support themselves. Mm -hmm. It's like the, the most fundamental thing you need to do when you're coming out of slavery. And they had put their savings, <clears> which again was, was very rare, in um, to, into the store. Yes. Did, did they come away? He had... Uh, he had uh, hidden that money, or, or it was mm -hmm. kept in a trunk, I believe yes, it was. a trunk. Did, did, was that money used, or was there any money left at all for them to from, go on? From what I could tell in the records, no. They, they expressed that they were pretty much cleaned out. Mm -hmm. um, there may have been a little bit left, mm -hmm. yeah. but not enough to really do yeah. much with. Um, so what they, you know, then they had to, to go work for the union and um, rebuild their enterprise. They never reopened a store. Um, but it's, you know, it's here they are as enslaved people. Enslaved people were denied the right to own property. You know, they didn't have property rights. They couldn't keep the return from their labor, their wages. Um, and here they are. They're now stepping into freedom and they're still having to really fight to defend that. Mm -hmm. So it's a really uh, compelling story, I think, in that. Um, the other two, Eliza Bogan, she's in the Mississippi Valley. So she is in the heart of the Cotton South working on a cotton plantation. She had uh, migrated there as a, an infant from North Carolina. Uh, her owner in North Carolina wanted to become a big cotton baron. And uh, so she made that migration. And um, it was as rough an existence as is legendary on these cotton plantations. She, and especially her owner, um, had once even been taken to court for excessive cruelty towards enslaved people. So that just tells you what she was dealing with. Um, she lost a husband to death, 
Another one was um, taken away by his owner. So she'd experienced so much turbulence that was common for enslaved people in her family. Um, And so war comes and she's got seven children. She's got another husband and um, she's got this violent master. And so she's got just so many um, things, you know, a lot of calculations to make. But what she does is she flees. She flees to a refugee camp, but then eventually joins her husband's regiment as a laundress. And she travels. Because she couldn't do any more. They they wouldn't allow her to do anything but wash the laundry. Right. There were were some, uh, do I understand, uh, women from the north who were serving as nurses or Mm -hmm. uh, aides of some sort, but she wasn't allowed to do that. Yeah, well, interesting. When you're a laundress, you're kind of doing some nursing too. So laundress is sort of a Hmm. catch-all position. Mm -hmm. But... um, but formally, she was she could have gotten if she was closer to some cities some work in hospitals, but not as a nurse. You know, mm-hmm. she would have been doing mm-hmm. more like housekeeping mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were some other ways that women were employed by the Union Army. Cooks were another one, um, and some women were employed working on the government started um, leasing out plantations in the in the Mississippi mm-hmm. Valley and. Um, they were hiring women to work on them. Mm-hmm. Um, so she could have done that. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, so she, she ends up, <clears throat> as a laundress, she's in some of the worst, most violent warfare in the Mississippi Valley. But she's doing it to try to keep, bring, you know, build a new secure life for her family. So it's almost ironic. Her children weren't with her, though. No, they weren't. She left them back on the plantation. Mm-hmm. The circumstances aren't clear. That's the thing about researching their lives. You never can connect all the dots and mm-hmm. fill out everything. Um, but there there were reasons to leave the kids behind. But it was also true, was it not, that in refugee camps, uh, oftentimes <laughs> the families were separated? I mean, the, as you just mentioned, the children were left on the plantation in Arkansas. Yes, she was in Arkansas. And... Uh-huh. Um, so even even the males of the families would go and 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 what they were they were working in building roads or supporting the union yeah. troops and then <clears throat> and then eventually fighting. Yeah. So what often happens is entire families might flee to these camps, mm. but then the the labor needs of the army and you know whether a man goes to labor for the army or enlist for the army, oftentimes that might take him away. So there is some family separation that could come. And this was a source of a great deal of um, disappointment, to put it mildly, um, and real trouble for these families because family separation was you know, the thing they endured in slavery and the thing they often were fighting against and trying to reunite again. Um, so when they're taking their first steps into these camps, they don't want to see their families pulled apart. And so... There are some men, I came across cases of men who were expected to go labor with the army over here, and they would go and then they'd desert. Mm. Um, and mm-hmm. and that would, that's actually the word used in the union records. They deserted and came back to their families because mm. they wanted to, to keep them together. That, that's another foundation of freedom mm-hmm. um, is your family. Without revealing too much, because uh-huh. she, you do write a great deal about Eliza Bogan, mm-hmm. and, and there were some... Uh, Terrifically tragic, uh, unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine even daily life not being tragic and yeah. unfortunate. But but then yeah. there were some other things that happened. What eventually happened to her? So late in life, 
Um, well, she ends up back in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. She ends up back in the same county after the Civil War. Um, and she has another husband. And they um, initially, they have property... Um, but they become sharecroppers. They mm-hmm. end up into sharecropping. And as sharecropping did for so many people, it mired them in debt mm-hmm. and um, just terribly. Mm-hmm. And so um, that really sunk them mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, her husband eventually passed away and she then built herself back up again. One of the things that actually helped was that she filed for a widow's pension mm-hmm. from the Union Army based on her husband's service. And that payment helped. She also worked as a midwife. Um, She um, probably did some farming work as well. And at the end of her life, she was living with her daughter, and they owned the house Mm. that they were living in. Do you know her age at at death? Right off the top of my head, I can't remember. Yeah, but 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 she she lived a pretty long life. Pretty long life. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she could be a, a folk uh, hero. Into the early 1920s. Oh, yeah. really? That's when she lived, yeah. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Then she must have been, mm-hmm. well, up up in her 70s, 80s, something she was, like that. Uh, she a- was 80 something, yeah. late high 80s. Wow. I should know this off the top of my head, yeah. but I can't remember yeah. right off. And and <laughs> uh, Gabriel Burdett, the uh-huh. other, has Kentucky um, yes. roots. And, um, uh, and I'm going to ask you about. Uh, your discovery, uh, your research for this, but uh, uh, the others obviously took you to other uh-huh. uh, uh, other places of, of source material. Yeah. What about Gabriel Burdett? How, how did you just discover him? Well, I first discovered Gabriel Burdett when I was going through some records of the American Missionary Association, which is this non-denominational organization out of New York that sent all sorts of teachers and missionaries into these camps during the war. And they're sending them, you know, around the world. I mean, they're doing all sorts of missionary work. Um, And I kept seeing letters from missionaries at Camp Nelson that were talking about this man named Gabriel, Mm. who they had met, and they thought he was so talented, and this and that. And then one day, here's a letter from Gabriel, Mm -hmm. writing to the people in New York. To a historian, if I can interrupt. Is that just like manna? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, is it Absolutely. just like uh, opening up a treasure box and going, oh my gosh, there's an, a letter from him? Absolutely. Especially when we're dealing with a population that, you know, reading rates of literacy were very low. We don't expect to come across, you know, written documentation they've written themselves. Um, so, and then I felt like I'd sort of gotten to know a little bit about him, and then here comes his letter. And, um, you know, it was just a letter reporting on what he was doing at Camp Nelson, and um, it made me wonder about him, about, you know, here in this letter, he made it clear that he was working on building um, a religious mission, you know, establishing churches, and um, I wanted to know more about the role of religion in all of this, what it meant to him, how did it sustain many of these people fleeing, um, but also what did these new spaces do for the whole landscape of independent black churches? You know, was this a moment when things could really change? Um, so I, I could sense in his story there was something bigger, 
And uh, I had I just had to know more about him. And you weren't living in Kentucky at the time. No, I was in New York actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was in Albany, New York. I remember exactly where I was when I was reading that microfilm because mm-hmm. it was on microfilm where I saw. Oh my goodness. The letter. Yeah. 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 Um, and so you remembered, um, or you, you, you had written about him before you came to, to Kentucky. I had. I had started um, working on this book and um, had written a little bit about him. And then, what do you know, a job opens up at the University of Kentucky, uh-huh. you know, down the road from where uh-huh. Gabriel Burdett was born yeah. and where he did his work at Camp yeah. Nelson. And um, so that became this great opportunity for me to really delve in a little bit deeper into his story. So Camp Nelson, mm-hmm. uh, in, in this uh, period of, of the book, uh, it plays an enormous part. And I, yeah. I, I would just bet that uh, not a lot of people have visited there or, or, yeah, or read they about should. it. They it's, need to. Yeah. So, yeah. so tell us um, what significance uh, Camp Nelson had during this period of time. I mean, I think it was one of the most important of the refugee camps I studied. And it was one that opened up freedom for a significant number of people and changed union policy in the process. Mm. Okay, that sounds really vague. Um, no, no, I think it sounds of immense importance. It, it's a, of immense importance. And to then elaborate on that, it's going to be a little bit more detailed. But, um, you know, here in Kentucky, we've already established emancipation policies don't apply. It's exempt from the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, so that puts enslaved people in a obviously a difficult position. And they know, I mean, you asked about how information travels. They know that people, that the union represents freedom and that it, the union has brought the Emancipation Proclamation. And they know it hasn't come to Kentucky. So th- they're very aware of all these competing currents of slavery and freedom out there. Um, so, so they're in a difficult um position and um, they start running anyway and they're going to pressure the Union Army anyway and at Camp Nelson they keep getting pushed back. Union officials at Camp Nelson push them back, expel them anytime they come. Well then, you know, the Union for various reasons um, starts relaxing some of its policies when it comes to the enlistment of men. And by the summer of 1864, the Union says, well, enslaved men in Kentucky can now serve in the Union Army. First, they say it has to be with the owner's permission. That causes all sorts of problems. Mm -hmm. So then they say, no, it doesn't. We are now open for men to come enlist. And if you enlist, you will be free. So that path opens. um, But that's only a path for men who are fit to serve, mm-hmm. you know, the right age and mm-hmm. physically fit and everything. So that leaves a lot of enslaved people in Kentucky who still, as late as late, um, the end of the summer, 64, cannot find freedom. So the women and children, they keep coming, they keep coming, they keep getting expelled, they keep getting expelled until um, November 1864. Another night, the union says, we're going to expel the women and children who keep coming. And they rounded up 400 of them, put them in army wagons in the middle of the night. It's like 17 degrees out, very cold. Take them out of Camp Nelson towards Nicholasville and basically drop them on the side of the road. They find a meeting house where they can take shelter and they make like one fire they're able to make. But it is brutally cold 
And some people are already sick. Um, a child dies that night, and within weeks, uh, more people die. Well, what happens is back at the camp, some of the, the husbands and fathers, the soldiers, um, they go out to find their families and they see what's going on. And they come back and they start dictating their stories to white officials at the camp, who some of whom are sympathetic. Those accounts get broadcast out of the camp. Um, some of the white officials, the quartermaster in particular, was kind of savvy. He started sending it to newspapers, knowing mm -hmm. how media works. Mm -hmm. You know, it wasn't that much different back mm -hmm. then than today. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, started yeah. sending it to newspapers, these wrenching accounts of a man going to discover his dead child out on the side of the road. And not just any man, a soldier in the Union Army, mm -hmm. um, whose child has basically been killed by the Union Army's policies. And they send the, the accounts to Washington to some of the abolitionist senators. Um, they send it to the Secretary of War. And it, do, it does not even take a month for action to come. Um, the newspaper articles cause a huge outcry. You know, how can the Union Army be fighting for freedom on the one hand and allowing the women and children of its soldiers to die on the other? Um, and so this pushes Congress. Congress passes a new law in March 1865, so this is just a few months later, that declares that all women and children or wives and children of black soldiers are now considered free in the eyes of the Union. And um, this then applies anywhere that was exempt from the Emancipation Proclamation. And it applies in Kentucky. And so now, Camp Nelson's open for women and children, but most importantly, freedom is open for women and children in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a huge step forward, a huge step in the policy. And uh, of course, it would take months later for the 13th Amendment to, to free everybody. But, um, but that's a big step, and that all happened at Camp Nelson here. Wow. So Camp Nelson was really the focal point of the national debate for mm -hmm. a time there. Is there a... Um... Is there a certain um, mythology that we uh, in this country uh, learned and have been uh, brought up to believe uh, that that is being corrected today? That that this your your work in Battle Freedom uh, tries to address and and there seems to me from Henry Louis Gates mm -hmm. and uh, uh, others that are writing that uh, that period that you write of, uh -huh. and then and then immediately afterwards, the 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 the, the passing of the Thirteenth Amendment certainly uh, there there that Reconstruction period was was forgotten in in our history. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Except for maybe historians. I mean the the yeah again the general public didn't didn't learn of yeah that that wasn't it wasn't over. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, our mythology in some ways has been freedom came, you know, Lincoln granted freedom, freedom came, and then we sort of jumped to the mm -hmm. Jim Crow South. Yeah. Oh, the white South couldn't handle it, so they reinstituted slavery. I mean, that's kind of in a nutshell, yeah. very oversimplified version of what has been the popular narrative. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what that does, <clears throat> it's frustrating to a historian, um, not only because it jumps over all these years of time, um, it jumps over, you know, 
all the the how and the why there's a lot going on on the ground in all those years that explains then where the Jim Crow South comes from um, but it also overlooks that whole story overlooks the actions of African Americans themselves and to a big degree in bringing about their own freedom and then in reconstruction in um, you know, building churches and schools and holding offices and becoming political leaders. You know, when we skip over reconstruction, we skip over a lot of what they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, I get a little bit into reconstruction in this book, but this is mostly about the war years. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping in the war years, it, it helps us to see every single day the actions of people in the most everyday ways were advancing the cause of freedom and how important those everyday actions were. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a policy coming down from Washington didn't have necessarily much effect on everyday life, but the actions of an individual person in their yeah. life did. Yeah. Um, well, Dr. Taylor, it, it's a it's an honor to have you um, with us uh, on the podcast. Um, one of the things I want people to know is that. Um, we are recording this in mid-February. Uh, you've just returned from uh, receiving uh, quite an honor. Um, you um, were awarded the prestigious Frederick Douglass Book Prize for uh, your book, Embattled Freedom, uh, Journeys Through the Civil War Slave Refugee Camps. Uh, the award is presented uh, annually by the, and if I'm mispronouncing this, is it the Gilder Lerman That's correct. Institute of mm-hmm. American History and uh, the Study of Slavery, uh, Resistance, and Abolition at, at Yale. Um, we also uh, will name drop here that you, you set uh, with, I, I'm sure, other historians beside uh, the, the noted Pulitzer Prize winning um, author and historian uh, of the most recent uh, Frederick Douglass biography, David Blight. That's correct. And I yeah. uh, had light conversation with him about, mm-hmm. I'm sure, about history. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that must have been quite a, quite an honor to be there and, and to it receive was. this award. I mean, what, what, that's not the only award. I mean, there's a, there's a whole list, but I, I don't yeah. know, maybe that one's the, it's, at the it's, top. it's so stunning. All of this has been stunning. I mean, when somebody, when you write a book, you just want people to read it. That's the big hope. And that was on my mind a lot. Are people going to read this? Are people going to read this? So not only to have people read it, but to have it recognized in such a visible way that more people will read Mm -hmm. it now Mm -hmm. um, is a a really wonderful thing because I hope it'll make somebody like Gabriel Burdett a household name. Mm -hmm. That would be the ultimate Mm -hmm. um, accomplishment in my mind. And just quickly as we sum up and and, uh, conclude, I know I've heard you say you worked on this for 10 years, uh-huh. um, a, a lifetime. Uh-huh. Uh, and when when John Grisham writes two novels a year. Oh, my gosh. Uh, uh, yeah, I know. I, I, I think the same thing. But the process that you went through, the discovery, for example, of, uh, of learning of uh, Gabriel Burdett, of, uh-huh. of all the records, and just, just give us an inkling of how a historian uh, like yourself would, would begin to embrace and and research um, an unknown story, if you will. Yeah, every path I took with each individual was a little bit different in the research process. It was a lot of, it was really detective work. Mm. And um, I actually met a detective once and I, who who writes history Mm. and does research. And I said, I feel like this is like detective work, is it? Mm -hmm. And he said, yes you know, confirmed it for me. Mm. But so in Gabriel Burdett's case, I had this letter and I just thought, huh, 
you know, where do I begin? And um, one of the best places to begin when you're dealing with the war is is with um, army records, because the obviously the army's in command at Camp Nelson where Gabriel Burdett was. It's in command in all these refugee camps. And as I learned, the army and its clerks were amazing record keepers hmm. during the war, which I never thought about. I think of armies on the move, yeah. you know? I don't think about them hauling around these big ledger books, hmm. but they did, and they're at the National Archives today. And they're recording, you know, the names of people who come in and out of lines, who's, who's getting paid what for what labor, um, and so forth, you know, food, who's getting food rations, and they're identifying enslaved people with their last name. Hmm. And this is really significant because the federal government had not done that in the federal census before. Um, this is the first time in a systematic way the federal government's recognizing them Started by full in name. the Civil War. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and it's these army records. Yeah. And so with Gabriel Burdett, I found, I started looking in army records. I found that he, um, I found him in a list of men who were impressed to go work at Camp Nelson, and that was actually how he first got there. He was brought in as a slave, did not was not given the wages from his labor, but I saw him listed there. Um, and that list gave me the name of his owner, because they listed the owner's name because they were gonna pay the owner. Mm-hmm. So once I had the owner's name, then I could go back into Garrett County, where he was from, because I think that list also told me he was from Garrett County. And I started researching the owner and the plantation and um, then... Um, and the plantation was in Garrett County. Yes. And that led me to the church, mm-hmm. a church that his owner and that family, the Burdett family, had helped found, a Baptist church nearby. Mm-hmm. So then I look at the church records. And the church records, I mean, this was kind of interesting. I thought... Maybe I would just drive down to the church and, you know, because it's still there today and I'd look at their records. Well, they're not there. Um, They were actually collected and microfilmed by the Latter-day Saints for their family search library. And in order to see these church records, I had to send a request to Salt Lake to send me microfilm back to Kentucky with these Kentucky records. It's just a funny way records travel sometime. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was in the church record books that I discovered that Gabriel Burdett had been preaching at this, it was a biracial church, but it was white governed. And he'd been preaching there before the war and gotten in trouble for speaking out of line, um, which told me a lot about what was maybe going on in his mind and what he wanted once he eventually got freedom at Camp Nelson. Well, that's a, a whole nother uh, interesting part of, that we didn't touch on. Mm-hmm. And, and it's when when African-Americans, uh, what, what did you call them? Uh, uh, the, secret, the secret churches that they... Invisible churches invisible is one churches. of them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, now I, I, I probably have the, the name wrong. That's not Three Forks, is it? Uh, in Gary? Well, it's Forks of Dix River Baptist oh, Church. Okay. Yeah. And, and that church, whether it's not the building, but, uh-huh. but that church is still in existence today? Yes, and, but it's, it is a different building. Um, oh, of but it is, is still there, and I went and walked around the graveyard, the cemetery there, and, like, there's where his owner's buried. You know, so really? these graves go way back. Yeah. With the dates of his uh, birth and death, just like you would find... Of, of the White family, yeah, yes. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what eventually happened to Gilbert Burdett? Well, he... 
Oh, he has an amazing story. I mean, he, so he's a minister at Camp Nelson. He becomes a teacher. He holds administrative positions. The Union Army really entrusts him with a lot of responsibility. Um, he starts establishing after the war independent churches and schools in the area. That's his real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a he is appointed to the board of trustees at Berea College in 1866. Oh. He's and he the, did meet John Fee. And he, yeah, he was working family. a lot with John Fee uh-huh. of Berea College. Yeah. Um, so he is determined to make Kentucky this free place for free freedom of thought, freedom of worship. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also gets involved in politics. Because, and that was a natural transition for black ministers. That's, they're already in a leadership position. Um, and they didn't draw clear lines between the sacred and the secular. Mm. And um, So he gets involved in politics after the war and uh, becomes a Republican. And um, I won't give all the details away, mm. but he becomes pretty prominent. But he is eventually feels and he is driven out of the state. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, the the racial violence against particularly people like mm-hmm. him who are outspoken mm-hmm. and taking a leadership role is pretty intense. And mm-hmm. so he leaves the state as part of what's called the Exoduster Movement. Hmm. This mm-hmm. is in the 1870s. These are um, a lot are from Kentucky. They're about 7,000 African-Americans from Kentucky, but also from other southern states. And they start moving to Kansas looking at, you know, the violence is bad where we are. Maybe Kansas is the place where we can go and resettle. Well, Dr. Amy Murrell-Taylor, thank you so much. And uh, we appreciate uh, your, your research and your enthusiasm about this. And uh, um, I'm not even going to ask you what you're working on now. Um, hopefully you're just resting and teaching and, and getting awards. <laughs> That's about right. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for being on the thank podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.